Speaking of which, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance is, is this other global force that you've been pivotal in bringing together. It's a lovely story too, how that came to be. It might be worth briefly recounting how the effort to, to bring people together, to not be pitching for money and other and attention against each other, but actually to be singing from the same song sheet to a degree. And then I'm interested now in, again, how you're seeing that. Is it working? Is it still the thing we should back? I mean, instantly then you've got a regenerative communities network here and a wellbeing alliance there. So is it just to let things bubble still? How are you seeing it? I suppose if you were to ask me what, what one thing am I passionate about? It's how to be effective. It's how to drive this change so that it actually happens. Our movement tends to be a bucket of crabs. As soon as one of us starts to gain elevation, the rest claw them down. And so I've hopped from group to group to group, trying to work with them and help them be effective. We all, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, grew out of a conversation between a number of us who had competing efforts. And I said, guys, we're arguing over who's captain of a rowboat. None of us is big enough to, uh, to make a difference. Why don't we start to combine all of these? And I said, I, you know, I haven't got it, but I'll, I'll go find a way to raise $5,000 to put in to help seed this. And John Fullerton said, I'll put in five. And Michael Pearson said, I'll put in five. And Bob Costanza put in five. And all of a sudden, we raised $30,000. Like, damn, I should have done this before. And the next morning at this uh, regenerative uh, future summit that we were holding, which brought all these people together, I reprised this and all of a sudden we had $100,000. You, As I understand it, you're at the lectern and you said, I'll take five <laughs> from you, thanks, John, and five from you, thanks, Bob. No, I said, I'll put in five. Who will join me? And the guys who had done it the night before all said, yeah, I'm in, I'm in. And then everybody else started jumping in. It's like, wow. We do love to be part of something. So uh, I gave the uh, the money to uh, Stuart Wallace and said, um, go create I, had, I wanted to call it playbook because what we need is a playbook for this new economy. Uh, he and some of his people renamed it the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, we all, and it now is this international network of new economy groups and activists. Uh, meanwhile, John asked if I would help be part of creating the Regenerative Communities Network, and you know, it was John. I said yes. So we became one of the uh, one of the anchor hubs, and to some extent now the the, the two are competing for resources, and it's like oh, yes, I thought so. Are we ever going to learn? Now we're back to being a bucket of crabs and uh, arguing over who's captain of a rowboat. But um, maybe it does take all of these different groups, each trying in its different way. And, and I wish them all well. I think that is true. I think both are true. I think what you're trying to avoid is true. And I think what you've just said is also true. So it's sort of, again, trying to find the right um, fertility balance, if you like, I think, and, and not remotely straightforward. <laughs> so 
You mentioned at the top, Hunter, the, the effort with the G20 recently. So this is interesting. First of all, tell us about what happened with the acceptance of the resolution that stemmed from the Club of Rome effort to adopt the green rebuild. And also then your reflection on how much stock do we put in a G20 versus, for example, formulating the Wellbeing Economy Governments Coalition? Or again, is it a bit of both? Short answer, none. Yeah, right, really. The work that uh, Catherine Trebek is doing with the well-being governments is, I think, vastly more important. And it is putting pressure on the G20 to start thinking more progressively, more regeneratively. So that, that definitely is a situation where you need both of these efforts going forward. The, the work from the Club of Rome is the work of a magnificent woman named Sandrine Dixon de Cleve, who is one of the co-presidents of the Club of Rome. And I'm just in service to Sandrine, uh, doing whatever little bits I can to help her along. She's the one who is in there slogging with the ministers, with, uh, the, uh, with the EU, with, uh, with all of the, uh, the powers that be. And I'm just supplying her factoids whenever I can and whenever she needs them, helping do a little bit of the writing. The issue now is, as I said, trillions of dollars are going to be spent. Now is the time that we have to be putting pressure on whatever meeting is coming up to try to see that the money be spent in a way that that delivers well-being to people, not greater corporate largesse and wealth. That will take playing with the big boys, playing with the bankers, playing with the uh, with the ministers, and at the same time, the uh, the slow work that that Catherine Trebek and uh, WeGov is doing is, is the long game. When you can get a government, uh, the Italians are thinking about this, uh, the Scots, Iceland. New Zealand. Uh, Finland may have just mm. joined uh, the, the WE7 governments. When, when a national government says, we are going to keep our national accounts differently, uh, the mayor of Shanghai said this a while back. We're, we're going to stop measuring GDP. We're going to start measuring well-being. That is one of these tectonic shifts that then a lot of things become possible that, that before just were, were inconceivable. So it, it takes, I think, working on all of these fronts and doing it in, in a way that, again, shows that this is a, in a time of crisis, this is a better way to generate jobs. It's a better way to generate well-being, to generate political support, which is, after all, what the ministers care about. That, um, and if you just keep giving money to the big guys, this is not going to do you as a politician a lot of good in the long run. You, you need to start giving people what they want. Speaking of which, Kate Rayworth doing her work. Kate was in the room when we created uh, We All. And she's doing this Action Lab work deal, Donut Economy Action Lab work around the world. Amsterdam has just formally signed on to it as a framework. So speaking of changing the North Star, 
it is a good framework, isn't it, to do it with? The city of Los Angeles, which is probably, uh, I, don't, I don't know how many times the size of Amsterdam, is now talking with Kate and looking at donut economics. Kate's work is absolutely brilliant. And, you know, the, the, it was interesting at this uh, at the same meeting where we created We All, uh, Kate added the word regenerative as part of her donut. Uh, there you go. If you look at the early graphics of it, regenerative's not on there. You look at it now, it's on there. So we all evolve by working with each other, by we all stand on the shoulders of giants and I am so in awe of what Kate has pulled off. Yeah, it's a beautiful way to put it. And you're involved in education, of course, heavily. I'm curious what you're seeing as the trajectory of education. I, I noted, for example, that uh, there was talk explicitly out of COVID of a discipline called planetary health, where you're merging planetary health with human health. That sort of interconnectivity in education, in worldview, is, of course, precisely what we need to head towards. So it was interesting to spot up there. And when I was speaking with a global health expert about this, she said, yes, that had been developing for a few years. As someone who's been in the education space for a while now and, and had to create your own programs as well, how are you seeing the trajectory of education? Is it, is it reflecting that in your experience as well? Or is that still pretty marginal? Do we still need different models? Again, if you'd asked me that uh, two months ago, versus now, I'd have had very different answers. It's been very marginal, and it's what students want. But academic institutions owe back to the medieval. Why do they graduate people wearing caps and gowns? It, it's medieval. I couldn't come at that either when I graduated. <laughs> it's like, and academic silos are case-hardened. They, uh, the professions don't want to talk to each other. So even getting interdisciplinary studies is challenging. Planetary health, what? Mm. Now, it's almost obvious. So what will education be over the next couple of years? It's going to be real different. Are students even going to want to go back and be physically close until we have a vaccine or we've built herd immunity. If you look at what happened the last time we had a, a great plague, that was the time when Newton and Spinoza were in their dorm rooms at Cambridge figuring out physics. Uh, Neil Stevenson's book, Cryptonomicon, walks through this shift from the the total faith in religion to the creation of science and the alchemists who were traveling around at that time spreading a different way of looking at how the world works i think we're in that sort of an era right now and fullerton says it's uh it's not an era of change, it's the change of an era. And COVID has only sped all of this yes. along. So I think we're going to reinvent education along with reinventing everything else. And we talked about Dana Meadows a little bit before. When she talked about paradigm change, she said paradigm change, of course, 
It's difficult, long, but by the same token, it happens in a moment. Eventually, it's really quick when it happens. When it happens. What vision are you holding for such a change? Dana's list of places to intervene in a system first emerged on my whiteboard. Is that right? Yeah. We were in an argument. uh, She was in an argument with one of my board of directors members who was a big fan of globalization and NAFTA. And and she was trying to describe how, how change happens and got up angrily and went to the board and started writing these out. And then after that, we had an email exchange back and forth uh, about what did she mean about this and shouldn't it be that? And I've still got those, those emails. Beautiful. Dana believed in human potential. She believed in the, the possibility of vision, the importance of vision. She believed we'd make it. And I think she was right. She said, uh, you know, you can't predict the future, but you can lovingly bring it into being. And that, I think, is the challenge before us. What do you think is the... She was a dear friend. Yeah. It's moving to hear that you still believe in that. Hunter. And uh, I know Hazel Henderson does too. I asked her the same question and she does too. She said, we're more up against it than ever. Like the odds are now sort of wrong side of 50, 50, but that we can still do it or do something meaningful out of this. I used to have a, uh, a little cartoon idealist realist, and then like a football score of idealist, zero, zero, zero zero realist one 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 and then the final score idealist one realist zero (laughs) very good i like it i'm a sports fan too so that works with me can listeners help you in any way hunter or or is your message broader than that to people as to what they can get up and do in this moment my friend the folk singer kate wolf once said find what you really care about and live a life that shows it And that's what people can do. Find what they really care about and make each day count. I was on the phone uh, yesterday with a a dear friend and colleague who's another dear friend and colleague just died. Not of COVID. She had a stroke. Reasonably young woman, just gone. And we were both reflecting It is not given to us to know the moment of our passing. It's only given to us to know how we're going to spend today. Tomorrow is an anticipation. Yesterday is gone. All that we have is the time we have right now today. So how are you going to spend it? I've been sitting with a line from Jack Cornfield of late where he said, the trouble is you think you've got time. It does put in perspective a climate emergency that actually this is our state of being. The trouble is we think we've got time. Live now. Live now. And make a difference now. Yeah. 
What you do now today will make the difference. Hunter, I thank you enormously for your time and your leadership and wisdom and care over decades. Thanks a lot and very best wishes to you. Anthony, thank you and thanks for spreading the word. That was Hunter Lovins, best-selling author, rancher and president of Natural Capitalism Solutions. For more on Hunter, her organisation, seminal books and growing regenerative networks, see the links in our program details. The Regeneration is an independent production made ad-free and freely available for listening and re-syndication thanks to our generous supporters and partners. If you too value what you hear, and of course if you happen to be in a position to do so at this time, please consider joining them by visiting our website via the show notes, regeneration.com. And as ever, thanks for sharing, rating and reviewing the show. Hunter is fond of telling the story of the gorged caterpillar in the chrysalis transforming into a butterfly as a metaphor for our times. So are many others of course, but I like Hunter's punchline which I hadn't heard before, that the butterfly doesn't come out fully formed without the struggle to emerge from its encasing. The music you're hearing is The System by the Public Opinion Afro Orchestra. My name's Anthony James. Thanks for listening. Are we human or the system? Giving people love. Are we human or the system? Giving people love. Why do you have to suffer for bad? Giving people love. New rules and regulations every day. Giving people love. Confusion rise and hold all of us. Because people can do anything they want to you. And say the system says so. 